And today we're going to be talking about the church's role in imparting wisdom into the culture we live in and the counsel we provide. And so that's where we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 today. And so I invite you to turn there and just a, a few things to warm up. Uh, so uh, let's deal with myth first. Uh, when, you use, when you say the word counseling, especially in American culture, um, uh, almost immediately by default, in our minds we get this picture of a room with a well-groomed, very articulate therapist who is really good at saying, I see. And then across the room from the therapist is a couch with an individual who is very troubled, laying down with their eyes closed, you know, recounting childhood memories. And so we, we say the word counseling in our culture, and oftentimes that's what we picture uh, in terms of counseling. Okay, so, so first of all, uh, the myth is that uh, that is the primary place that counseling happens in our culture. It's not. That's a very small sliver of the pie. Um, our daily lives that we walk and live in, uh, our homes, parenting, marriage, uh, those are the places where most of the counseling I use that term generically, is happening. Now, whether or not it's good or bad counsel is up for debate, but that's where counseling takes place. Counseling is uh, imparting, or at least attempting to impart, some sort of wisdom or guidance from one individual to another that would be helpful, okay? So that's what counseling is, and friends do that, couples do that, parents do that. Happens a lot in life groups, happens uh, in your work offices, in the break rooms, it happens over Facebook. Uh, so a lot of places counsel is imparted in our culture. Um, but what I want to do today is, is address also the, the big hot topic debates that are out there, and then we'll move on to where we're going today. So that's the myth, uh, that, that that's what counseling is. When we use counseling in the context of the church, what we're talking about really is discipling, okay? Discipling. Counseling is under the umbrella of discipling. A matter of fact, my counseling conversations and my discipleship conversations are one and the same. So what, why do we even use the word? Typically, the only difference is if we're in counseling, and this is still not a significant difference, is we're, we're honing in on one topic for a long period of time, marriage counseling. So the primary thing we're talking about is marriage, applying the same theology, same methodology to the situation, whereas discipleship is more encompassing of, of all of life. Now, the, the debates that are out there, there's two debates right now when it comes to the church's role in counseling. One is between the secular world and the church. This debate has been going on since late 20s, maybe even early 20s and 30s in, in our nation, though we're going to see from, from, the, from uh, Paul's word to the Corinth church, I mean, it's, it's been happening since the beginning of, of God's truth being expressed in humanity. Uh, we can even go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? counseling conflict between God's counsel and the counsel of the serpent. So um, while it's not a new debate in North America, it's been a very heated debate uh, in the last three quarters of the last century and even today, uh, the church's role, because primarily we believe in supernatural. We believe that God can and will heal and save and rescue and reconcile. Uh, you can't measure that empirically. You can't put that on a chart and prescribe it. And so there's been a debate between the secular world and the church now that's growing and growing. Now, within the church, there's a second debate that's been growing almost as long uh, between the use of secular methodologies and insights, uh, integrating that with biblical counseling in the church. And so you have even division in, in, inside the church 
Uh, even on seminary campuses, I've experienced this myself, seminaries who said, you know, we're no longer going to offer any secular um, overview or insights or counseling into what we're doing. We have some seminaries who've pushed away from biblical counseling towards more of a, a secular model, and, and you can get it, okay? So there's this huge debate happening uh, across at least North America. So why, why are we talking about it today? Well, first of all, I have no intention of settling any debates or um, going after the secular world, or going after Christendom and this big division that's happening here. All I hope to do is, from the counsel of God's word, is to, to enlighten and call the church to its role, specifically in terms of guiding people in life and where we get our source of wisdom. That's what we're going to do today, okay? So the debates are out there. We can have coffee sometime and go through that if you want. But for today's purposes, whether you land on one side of a debate or not, uh, that's really not what we're after today. What we're after today is what does God call the church to and what's the church's role and responsibility in providing wisdom to the world and where do we get it? So um, so what I want to do, uh, just, just right off the, the bat, a primary difference in and then I'll leave this topic or this part of the topic between secular wisdom and, and God's counsel from his word. One of the primary differences is, uh, that, and this is counsel whether you're in the break room or you're sitting in the therapist's office or you're, uh, you're calling your mom or dad on the phone to receive wisdom. If it's coming from the secular world, it would primarily be after two things, striving towards two goals, behavior modification, circumstance manipulation. If we can change behavior or the circumstance, we can be happy. Okay, now I know that's a very summarized statement, but in general, that's what a secular mindset is after. Whereas a biblical mindset is actually after a heart change, where motives change on the inside, supernaturally, by faith, and the work that God does through his word and the Holy Spirit in us, and then the outcome, the fruit of that then, will be different behavior. But it's a joy and a peace to be had, even if circumstances don't change. And so in many ways, I think of biblical counseling or God's counsel from his word as an anchor for the soul that anchors us and directs us. It, it, it fixes us on a right direction in life, regardless of circumstances. It anchors us and guides us. All right. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, saw last week in chapter 1 that false leaders were already beginning to emerge in the church, find their place in the Corinth church, and beginning to adapt and modify the gospel. Paul calls the church back to the gospel, says our unity is found in the gospel. This is gonna keep us from division when we root ourselves in biblical convictions. Now he's gonna shift in chapter two to begin addressing the wisdom and where the church gets its sorts of wisdom. We'll come back next week and finish our conversation on discipleship and practically how we, that plays out in the church. But today, specifically in chapter two, looking at where we draw our source of wisdom from. So in, we'll start in verse uh, one. And we'll go through verse 5 and come back and talk about it, and then we'll move on. So verse 1, and I, this is Paul writing, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided instead, if you want to read it that way, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
And you can clearly see Paul calling the church away from the wisdom of men to the wisdom of God that has power. Now, we're going to get more detailed as we move along. But so far, what Paul has laid out is this. The first thing is this, the power of biblical counsel or the counsel of God's word. The power, first of all, doesn't rest in intellectual wording. That's that lofty speech, high speech. Okay, Things need to sound smart if they're going to have power to them. Paul is saying that. Like, I didn't come to you and try to convince you uh, with how smart I am. Now, ironically, he was a very educated man. If you go into Philippians and read his, basically his resume, he was a very, very educated, articulate person. We can tell from his writings. He was no dumb person. But he's saying that the power of what he shared with them in message was not in the loftiness or the, his intellectualism, but in something else. And then he quickly diverts to what? The gospel. I decided to do nothing among you except for what? Christ and him crucified. Now, this is going to come up twice in this passage, and we talk about it a lot on here on Sundays. Let me take a moment just to explain what we mean here. When, we're, when we say the gospel, we don't simply mean that we are sharing with another person, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, now repeat after me. Okay, that's, that's what a lot of us grew up in a church, and we heard gospel, that's what it meant, Right? Jesus died for your sins on the cross, and if we had a little extra time, and he rose from the grave, now repeat after me. What we mean here is the full, encompassing theology of the whole of God's word. And, and for those of you who are new here, visitors with us, we spent all of last year in the Old Testament observing the gospel. And we started that series in Luke 24 after the resurrection when Jesus said to the church, his disciples, and then subsequently to the church, that all of the law, the prophets, everything you read in the Old Testament is essentially about me. And so we read the Old Testament that way last year. And we see that the, when we say the gospel, we're not talking about just a small piece of the story. We're actually talking about the whole of the story. God created the earth good and man's rebellion and, and sin. We broke the fellowship and relationship we have with God and the, uh, the presence, the access into his presence. And so the Old Testament is the playing out of men trying to regain that on their own, and it doesn't work. And in Matthew, the break of the New Testament, God sends his son to live in righteousness, to die on a cross, to take all of our brokenness on himself at the cross and to the grave, to resurrect from the grave, that by faith we might have then now a restoration of relationship with God, a restoration of who we are to go back to Genesis 1 created good, and we might walk in that newness until he returns. That's the story of the Bible. It is the gospel. So Paul says, I didn't come to you and try to convince you with intellectual words. All I did is bring to you this gospel. The second thing that Paul reveals to us, or God reveals to us through Paul's writing here, is that the power of biblical counsel, taking the Bible and applying it to life, isn't contingent on Persuasive words. That's the second thing that he mentioned there, right after uh, verse 3. Uh, he uses it, actually, it's in verse 4, he says, And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. That means convincing or persuasive. I didn't try to talk you into it. Uh, if anybody was, uh, was qualified to say that about themselves, Paul, right? He doesn't mix words. He's never trying to talk you into a relationship with Jesus. As a matter of fact, he's laying it out very, very clear, very black and white, very matter-of-factly. This is how it is. And, uh, and so he's saying, remember that. That's how I brought it to you. I didn't warm you up to the idea and kind of talk you into the gospel. I shared it how it was. 
So then if the power of life change, the power of God's counsel through his word is not rest in lofty speech or plausible or persuasive speech, then he does tell us what it is where it does rest. This is the rest of verse four. But in demonstration of the spirit, Holy Spirit, and of power. So power doesn't rest in lofty or plausible speech, but power rests in the Holy Spirit's work. And then verse five, so your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I love that word rest. It's actually the be verb, which means to be. And so you could just change that word out with is. The faith might not, or be, be in the wisdom of men, period. That your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but that your faith would be in the power of God, God's ability, okay? So the power of life change is in God's work in our lives. Now, as a church then, here's what we have to understand. We believe in God's supernatural ability to change hearts. And that's not just when you do the repeat after me prayer, it's in all of life. We are not only saved by faith, but we walk by faith. You just heard a testimony of Pastor Ben, a believer saying, here's how I'm walking by by faith. If you heard the full story, I encourage you to ask him how he got to the U.S. To the, and just let him share with you how he walked by faith out of his tribe into another city, then to Butuan, then to Manila, then to New York, then to Nashville, then to Dallas-Fort Worth. Like, you need to hear how he walked by faith on that journey, and tomorrow morning he gets ready to walk back. And he said to me several times, I don't know how I'm going to explain this to the non-believers back in the Philippines. I got to, how did you get to America? You must have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of money. How did you get there? By faith. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean, though, that the counsel that comes out of the church or the counsel out of God's word does not include practical, strategic, and empathetic counsel, right? Doesn't mean that we just read a verse like some kind of magic potion and go, everything's fixed. Just believe it. The, the counsel we get from God's word is very practical. It is very strategic. It's rooted in the gospel, right? And it's empathetic. It has compassion. I love those stories where Jesus had compassion, and then he sits down with the people. He had compassion on them, and then he fed them. Like, look for that. Do a word study on compassion just from the gospels and see the compassion of Jesus our Savior, his empathy. Did Jesus have to spit in the mud and make mud in his hand and touch the blind man's eyes for him to see? No, he's God. He could have said, he could have said nothing, right? He could have just looked at the guy and nodded his head and went, hmm, you like that in his eyes? Yeah, right. But he didn't. He, he got involved. He, got, he incarnated into our world and into that situation and touched the man's eyes where he was, right, where his, where his ailment was, and he healed him there. So, so let's don't get this mindset then. All we do as a church then, and we'll talk about this at the end, is go around yelling verses at people, and that's going to fix things. However, there is a very real and powerful supernatural element, element to what we believe and practice as a church. Now, um, going forward into verse 6, Paul says, Yet among the mature, okay, and this is going to help correct another mindset, in, uh, or myth that happens in counseling. And let me just address it and then we'll read it. So um, something changes when you share with somebody that you're in counseling. 
And, uh, and so, like, you could be sharing with your friend, yeah, we're struggling in our marriage, and the conversation's kind of casual, and you're talking back and forth and empathizing with one another. I know my wife's like that, too. And, and you know, and you're kind of back and forth. But the moment you say, and so we're going to counseling, all of a sudden the conversation just changes, right? It gets awkward. Oh, it's that bad. Whoa. And, right? You know what I'm talking about. And so there's this myth that, like, if you have to go to counseling, you must be in really bad shape. Well, as a church, we understand that counseling is really discipleship. Um, I have friends who are on staff at churches that require their pastors and their wives to go to counseling once a month, marriage counseling, once a month. Why? What's, right? What's broken? Why, why do I need to do that? Because counseling is discipleship. And every believer needs to grow. And look at what Paul says next, verse 6. Yet among the mature, I'm not just talking about the baby Christians, the immature, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although, he talks about the wisdom, it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. The wisdom of this age, talking about a time frame, a generation, not just the wisdom that's Right, popular today, or that popular people, influential people are projecting here. Let's talk about that for a minute. This is the place where I feel like we share some similarities and struggle with the, the tribes in the Philippines. There's, there's this different for different reasons, but like we are a culture immersed in different beliefs. We are. Even Christianity itself has been, much like this church, infiltrated by different belief systems, attempting to modify the gospel, soften it up. Just give you a, a couple things to think about here. Um, so the, the more, I'd say the, 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 the broader um, or the larger influence right now is Unitarianism here in the U.S. Um, and so now you have the, the Christian Unitarian Church, the Buddhist Unitarian Church, the idea basically of a universalist experience with God. You can get to God however way you want to. This just happens to be the way we get him many paths. You guys are familiar with that, okay? It's a very popular mindset uh, here in the U.S. And, uh, but more specifically is, I would say, Scientology. Maybe a more specific version of that. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, I mean, it's just exploded as soon as, as soon as Tom Cruise got a hold of it. All of a sudden, everybody wants to be in it. Right? You didn't know about Scientology until, until Tom Cruise became the spokesperson, right? Uh, and so what's happening now, that blew up, uh, you know, 10 years ago, the last 10 years, but now you're seeing a great uh, removal now from that. People leaving, very famous people uh, leaving uh, Scientology, uh, either to go back to where they came from or to find something else, because ultimately it's not, it's not paying the dividends it promised. I mean, that's just an example of something popular, a popular mindset or influence that people jump on board. And that's what Paul's saying. Like, I didn't just bring you a wisdom that was like time sensitive. It was, it was trendy or something that the, 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 uh, the pop culture icons were getting on board with famous people. Our wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Um, the wisdom of God's word isn't something you grow out of as a Christian. It's something you actually grow into. I think far too many of us have, in our Christian experience, passed the buffet of biblical counsel, and along the way, we picked up some things we liked, and then just kept walking, and, and didn't realize that actually, it's it's actually a well that you start digging in God's word. That salvation is really just the first shovel that you dig out and discover a life found 
in Christ, a well that does not run dry. And every time you open God's word and the Holy Spirit works in you is just a digging deeper, a digging deeper into that same well. It's not something we pass by for relief and then leave. It's a place we come and stay. So we never outgrow the need for biblical counsel or God's wisdom from his word. It's for the mature just as much or more than it is for the brand new believer. And nor is it something that we need only for the big events or struggles of life. It's every day. I would say most of the counsel of God's word is for everyday living. It anchors us in the big storms. It, it helps us get through the major trials. But more often than not, I mean, counsel of God's word is for me tomorrow morning when I wake up, my alarm goes off and I realize, oh, I have a wife and I have kids I'm responsible for and I don't feel like getting out of bed. It's God's word that counsels me and reminds me of who I am in Christ and the responsibility he's given to me and I, and I get out of bed and go make lunches and, and check in and see, Hallie, is there anything I can do to help you get your day started? And So like every day, right, is the living out of God's word and counsel, not just the big events, the, the, those moments where everything just falls apart. Now, it's helpful in those times, but that's, if we're not digging the well in everyday life, then we get to those moments we have nothing to draw from. All right. Now, in verse 7, he then goes back to the gospel. He says, but we impart, so he's going to go back to this wisdom that the church imparts. We impart a, and here's how he describes it, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now, this is a familiar wording with Paul. He uses it in Ephesians um, in, in chapter 3 of Ephesians, he just lays it out and says this hidden secret wisdom of God, this mystery that's been revealed is, is essentially the gospel. And in Romans 16, does the same thing, a few verses from Romans 16, same author writing, talking about this hidden wisdom. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Pretty clear. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for, for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, the Philippines, the United States, and Africa, and so on and so forth, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So here again, Paul is saying, this is, what, this is the well you need to be digging from. It is the truth of the gospel found in God's word from cover to cover. Dig here. Dig here, church. And now he's shifting, though, and he's talking about what we impart. You see how he's beginning to show the church its responsibility in imparting to the world. Now, verse 8 and 9, he's going to continue this theme, and he's going to quote Isaiah. Let's read 8 and 9. None of the rulers of this age understood this, Going back to leaders, pop culture leaders, political leaders of his time, and I would say it's true of our time, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would, have, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There's one tangible proof that they didn't get it. They killed him, okay? But as it is written, and then he explains from the prophet Isaiah, the blindness of mainstream culture. But as it is written, what... No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God prepared for those who love him. 
Now, this shows up several places in the Old Testament. It's actually a stitch that's sewn through uh, several of the, the prophetic writings of the Old Testament that, that there's this truth and this wisdom to be revealed. And Paul says, it's, it's finally here. It's, it's been revealed in Jesus. But the Old Testament prophets were given this insight that there's something lingering. There's a truth here. We know it's happening. We know God's unveiling it, but, but we can't fully see it. The prophet Isaiah writes about it in a couple of places, actually, um, but it brings it up for the second time in, in Isaiah 64. I just wanted you to see a few verses from Isaiah 64 describing this truth that is hidden. Verse 1, we'll start there. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Verse 2, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. And we're going to get to where he quotes this passage, but this is the passage he's referring to, that there's, this, there's a supernatural part of God that when God's presence shows up, that there's a, it's tangible. Okay? He's recounting times where God's presence showed up and you could feel it and it shook the mountains. It was like a fire that's crackling and popping brush. We see it in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, actually, into Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit falls as a promise on God's people at Pentecost into Acts 2. And it's like tongues of fire moving and the walls are shaking. And there's this tangible expression of God's presence. Now, that's, that's awesome. But what Paul is saying is that that happens in our everyday lives and hearts as well. God's presence brings about a tangible influence. It's not this separation between the supernatural and the real. Where the only thing that's supernatural here is to inspire us and encourage us and make us think differently. But that God's presence in your life will have a tangible fruit. At times he'll shake you a little, rattle you. Other times in the midst of turmoil, he'll be this very real, tangible peace that you can't explain. But nonetheless, it doesn't go away. God's presence is real. Then he goes on to finish this Isaiah quote, verse 4, from of old, meaning for forever. No one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen. That's a very common quote from the Old Testament, and Paul's referring to this uh, in 1 Corinthians 2. No no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No, I have seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. This expression in the Bible to us is an understanding that you and I cannot find absolute truth, a.k.a. God, based simply on or solely on our human observations. Okay? Now, it's a big debate, again, out in Christian counseling and all that kind of stuff. Now, that doesn't mean that. Romans 1, truth can't be observed outside of God's word by looking at the created world and seeing God's character revealed. It doesn't mean that. But this idea of perceived means there's this level of understanding it to the point where you would embrace it and move into it. We need what Isaiah is saying and what I believe Paul is saying to, to find God's wisdom is we need something external. We need God to unveil for us. We aren't bright enough. The sharpest among us is not sharp enough to simply measure the chemical compounds and, and put together a periodical chart and find God. 
We can find evidence of God, but we'll never find God outside of, apart from him revealing to us this wisdom. I mean, man did it, tried to do it for a long time before Jesus showed up and said, let me show you. Let me put on your skin, let me walk your trod, and let me show you truth. And he said, what? I am the truth, the life and the way. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so Paul is saying this wisdom that the church has been entrusted with, that it will, the church will then be imparting to the world, is a wisdom that needs God to reveal. It reminds us as a church, right, of our part, our role in God's work in the, in the world. Do we have a role? Yes. But where does the power lie? In our plausible or lofty words? In how, how good or bad the music is on Sunday morning? How incredibly beautiful our buildings are? No, the power rests in God and God alone. His word and his spirit working in the hearts of men. That's our job, church. All the voices that you and your family, your children are hearing, all the counsel coming into you and at you, all of it outside of the church teaches a different message than that. All of it. Um, I had the opportunity to take our oldest son uh, camping for the first time last, last Friday. And I had a very, uh, uh, what I would say, eye-opening or awakening moment. Um, I was there, and um, there was another dad and his son. We have been talking the whole way. And there was, a, there was a moment of about 30 minutes where the boys were in their tents getting ready to go to sleep. And the other man who was with me was with his son. And I didn't have my phone with me. And even if I had, it wouldn't have worked where I had nobody to talk to but God. Now, I've had many conversations with God, even this week, but it was the first time in I can't remember how long I had no other option where I couldn't send out a Facebook post at 2 a.m. and whoever commented, I could comment back. I could send a text. I could send an email. I could make a phone call. I could right, talk to my wife. I, for, in that moment, I had no other input but God's creation, God alone, and, and, it, and, it, and it awakened me to the culture we live in. All the counsel we're surrounded by and bombarded with. And it's not, I'm not saying it's all bad, but that we're saturated with it. Paul is saying we need God to reveal to us. Man will not figure this one out on his own. Then he'll go on to address another issue in that same Isaiah passage. Uh, pick up verse 5. We'll just finish it and go back to 1 Corinthians 2. So picking up verse 5, he says, um, talking again, the prophet Isaiah speaking to God, you, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. He's saying, God, you joyfully spend time with the people who get it right. Behold, though, you were angry when we sinned. In our sin, in our sins, we have been a long time. He's talking about the story of the Bible. He's going all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3. You were angry when we sinned, and our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? Or shall we, yeah, shall we be saved? Verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf 
and our iniquities like the wind. Take us away. We'll just stop there. Again, he's, the prophet Isaiah is saying, God, we have tried on our own and we can't find you. And again, Paul is quoting this passage from Isaiah as he's talking about the wisdom of God the church has been entrusted with to give to the world. The world can't find it. The lost world cannot find it on their own. And that should not be an arrogant statement, but still a truthful statement. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Spirit is searching the depths of you, the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Again, you and I just having a dialogue isn't going to cut it. It's not. I'll never ask enough questions to get to the depths of who you are. We need God's spirit to be part of that conversation. Verse 12, now we have received Not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Verse 13. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Let me me illustrate for you. Jerry, you have the, the slide, I think, of this, of what I believe in my mind the conversation looks like in true Biblical counseling, okay? Not a therapist room, not me with my glasses on saying, I see you, and you laying on a couch. But like, as believers, us talking, discussing truth and how it applies to our lives. This is what I think it looks like, if I could illustrate it. You have the Holy Spirit of God. You have the counselor or the mature believer or the person who's, who's imparting wisdom from God. You have the counselee, the person receiving on the other side. It's this three-way conversation that I call the, I got this from somebody else, but the trilogue, okay? just to play on words. So it's not a dialogue, it's a trilogue. And any counseling that I take part in, whether it's a formal setting or you and I just passing in Starbucks, if it's going to lead to life change, has to look like this. Where as I'm talking to you and you're talking to me, I'm also praying and seeking counsel from the Holy Spirit who's speaking to me as I speak to you. Now, everything I say to you, if you come talk to me, not 100% of that's going to be absolutely true. So what do we do? Well, we hope two things are happening. If I'm imparting something to you that's not true, it's not rooted in God's word, what I'm hoping is that the Holy Spirit will shoot that down as you hear it. Because the Holy Spirit's also speaking to you. Okay? So the Holy Spirit would shoot that down, and you would go, that doesn't sound like God's word. And then you might then speak to me truth. Now I'm all of a sudden the counselee in that moment. And I go, oh, you're right. And I hear it, and it resounds with me. Because why? The Holy Spirit has revealed it. Because he's speaking to both of us. And then I speak to you things that are true, that may be uncomfortable, may be painful to hear, but you receive them. Why? Because I use plausible or lofty speech? No, because the Spirit's in you, kind of ushering that truth into your life and showing you, hey, I know you don't want to hear this, but you see where that's true? You see how the Holy Spirit's involved in both of those conversations? This is what I believe Paul's getting at here. We need the Holy Spirit to impart wisdom, both from the giver to the receiver and back and forth. And I try to say this in most 
counseling sessions that I'm in, like, this isn't just going to be me telling you what is true, especially if I'm talking with a believer. Listen, I want to hear back from you. If something doesn't resound with you, it doesn't mean it's not true, but what I want you to do is have permission to push back. Say, I don't see it that way, or it doesn't, doesn't seem right, or that's not consistent. Because why? One, I might be off. As a Christian who's growing myself, right, I may be off. But, but two, that you feeling it and rejecting it might be the truth hitting you and you not liking it. And I need to know that. It tells me how to pray for you. And if you give back to me something and it's clearly in line with truth and you say, I'm not re- receiving that right now, I don't need to take a bat and hit you harder. What I need to do is I need to speak to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, I- I'm doing my best to communicate this, but it's not being received. Correct it, fix it, but more than anything, help it sink in. I need you to work over there. And so I, it's not my job to force it, but to reiterate it, to say, well, could I explain it differently? and to participate with what the Holy Spirit's doing. Does that help? Okay. Now, from what Paul just said, these things are true. The Holy Spirit searches out situations. Bring to me a circumstance, especially if it involves more than one person, which almost all of them do. I'll only get one side of the story, and I know that up front, right? Three sides of the story, yours, mine, and the truth. So I have to hear one side. Well, what do I do? If I can't talk to the other person, I start praying. Holy Spirit, you saw the whole thing go down. Can you, can you help me see this thing the way it really is? And the Holy Spirit, according to Paul, searches the heart of God and the heart of man and the heart of the situation to expose and bring to light what is true. The Holy Spirit then reveals what is true. The Holy Spirit provides understanding for the counselor and counselee. I love the way that, that part ended. Verse 13, and we impart this wisdom, not in words taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. And here's what he means. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. As Paul is talking about how the church gives truth, the Holy Spirit is there helping interpret it, apply it, reveal. So the Holy Spirit provides understanding for the counselor and the counselee. And the last thing I'd say about this part is the Holy Spirit reveals, interprets God's truth into application for our lives. Um, it's, a, it's a real humbling experience to be at the end of a, of a, a meeting, a counseling or discipleship meeting where you can tangibly see a person was awakened. And uh, when that happens, it's humbling and it's sweet, and you're like, yeah, this was cool. Like, all I did was just kind of interject in a conversation God was having with that person, and the work is really the Holy Spirit's work there. Um, and so, like, if we're not cautious, we'll see that happen and go, whew, I'm getting really good at this. Um, Remember that the Holy Spirit is still working on you, <laughs> and you may go into your next one and crash and burn if you have that attitude, and, uh, and, and God still works, and, and you crash and burn. Um, the Holy Spirit is the one who's putting it into application, opening people's eyes to go, oh, that's the smartest thing I've ever heard. Can I tweet that? Sure. Quotes, the Holy Spirit. Like, give me credit, but, is, I mean... Right? I didn't do that. I didn't say that. You've been in those conversations, right? And it may not have been a counseling session, but you spoke something and went, whoa, that didn't come from me. And the person was like, whoa, that's really helpful. And you're like, that wasn't me. I don't know where it came from. That's what we're talking about here. You could have been, right? You could have been at the beach on vacation. You could have been eating lunch with a coworker. You could have been, right, helping a struggling Christian in their marriage. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit works through you to bring about wisdom. All right. Last few verses of this this chapter, this passage we're going to look at. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. 
the natural person, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? He goes back to chapter 1. They're foolish. They're folly to him. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In summation, I would say that what Paul's getting at here with some really um, deep wording is ultimately this. Absolute truth is not measured by how well it's accepted. Doesn't determine whether or not it's truth. Now, truth can resound in us, and we can go, whoa, that is true. But on the surface, the truth of God's word will oftentimes feel like foolishness or seem foolish to the world. We won't get into that. You can, uh, last week's sermon is online. You can go back and listen or just read chapter one on your own and, and see Paul explaining why the wisdom of God is foolish to the world that doesn't know God. But I think one of the primary points I would say then in application is this, that um, first, of, first of all, if counseling is faithful to the scriptures, it can be and oftentimes will be very hard and painful. I would say that. Oftentimes it's very hard and it's very painful. Because the Holy Spirit of God and his word are searching your inner self and drawing things to the surface that aren't comfortable. Whether they're things that you did that you want to hide or they're things done to you that you also want to hide, both can be equally uncomfortable and painful. And if real heart change work is going to happen, the Holy Spirit goes into the depths of who you are. So you imagine counseling being a house. The Holy Spirit gets to go to every closet and look underneath every rug. And so, so that when that happens, it can be uncomfortable and painful. Right? I would say this too. There's another struggle that we have as humans, and that's what he's talking about. Human nature operates in perceived felt need. This is what I perceive I need right now. And every, I would say this, every counseling session that starts with me, you know, where I sit down with a person intentionally starts with what a person perceives they need. And it's oftentimes the first question I ask. Why are you here? What is it that you hope to get out of this? And a person responds with what they perceive they need. Now, the problem is, right, we can't on our own get to the depths of what we need. We need the Spirit to take us deeper. And so if we come in thinking, I need sympathy, right, I need sympathy and I need compassion, that can be offered, but the Holy Spirit may say, and you know what, you also need something else that you're not going to like. You need a mirror. We need to look at some things in your life, right? And so perceived felt need gets shattered and real needs emerge, and we have to look at things that we don't like. The Holy Spirit does that in counseling. And I would say this, um, because we as people are prone to wonder from truth, we always need to hear what is true, and what is true calls us back. And, and like, I, I mean, if you want to see what this looks like, um, illustrated, come watch, uh, watch me take my three-year-old to Walmart and not put him in a basket. Okay? He's prone to wonder. 
And he's prone to not stop when I say stop the 10th time. He's prone to not stop until I go physically stop him. We are prone to wonder as God's children. And we never like that stopping motion, right? And turning and returning to what is good and right. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. You want to know when you found truth? It will be uncomfortable. Oftentimes it will be painful. It will be corrective. That doesn't negate its encouragement to your soul. We'll get to that in just a minute. The way it fills you with joy. The way it provides for you a peace that can't be shaken. All right. Um, I love this proverb. It's Proverbs 27.6. Uh, the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. That's a, it's a verse from Proverbs in the Old Testament, a book on wisdom, on counsel. When you, a good friend who loves you shares something with you that is true, oftentimes it'll feel like a slap in the face or a punch to the gut. You can trust the wounds of a friend, but we're prone to trust the kisses of enemies, the things that feel good, that meet our felt need. The, and, and it happens so oftentimes in marital trouble. We, we gravitate toward the people who get on our side who say to us things like, you don't deserve that. You've been such a, a good wife, and you don't deserve a jerk like that. And they're only hearing one side of it. You might just give them a break. But also not seeking to share with you what might be uncomfortable, right? To say, well, this is what is true. And so we gravitate, right, don't we? If we're not careful, we'll gravitate to what feels good and wise. And we need to purchase a new car. Don't call dad. Because you know what his counsel is going to be. We talk, talk to people who are going to, we perceive will be on our side and say, you deserve this. You've worked hard for it. Right? There's some examples where we're prone to soft counsel, to the kisses of enemies is what Proverbs says. I mean, think about it. If I encourage you to buy a car you can't afford, especially if you have a family, I'm an enemy to you and your family. I'm just participating in shackling you for at least five, if not six, now seven plus years to something you can't afford. I didn't do anything good for you. But the wounds of a friend can be trusted that says to you, hey, first of all, have you prayed about this? Second of all, let's look at your budget. Like, can you really afford this? Here's where we're gonna land today. Not to create a debate, but to simply define the church's role in imparting wisdom to the world. Here's the way I would say this and illustrate it. The church is to be the beacon of God's wisdom in the world. The beacon. You know what a beacon is? Like a lighthouse, a rotating light. Now, that's different from a bullhorn. Okay, There's a difference between a beacon and a bullhorn. You know what a bullhorn is, Pastor Ben? It's this megaphone you put up to your mouth, and when you yell, it makes sure you're yelling louder. Okay, sometimes as a church, we feel like that's our job, to take God's truth and bullhorn it at people and yell at people. And it's not at all what Paul is calling the church to, but he is calling us to be a beacon. A beacon is different. Jesus actually said that too, so I'm not just stealing this metaphor. Jesus said we're to be a light in the world. City on a hill can't be hidden. The church is to be the beacon. Beacons are positioned in the community, for the community, to see and order for people to find their bearings and to have guidance for their journey. It was deeper than that, but that's who we are to be ultimately as the church in the culture and the community we're in, to be a beacon, a place where people can get their bearings when they walk into our doors, a place where people can find guidance and direction. 
And if all we do is impart things that feel good, sound good, meet perceived felt needs, sound like the wisdom of the world, we truly aren't helping people. We've got to, as a beacon, call people to truth. The church is to stand as a beacon in the midst of culture in order to help people find their way to the the truth and to help guide believers through the dark and difficult journey of living in a fallen world. That's our role, church. I'll say it one more time. The church is to stand as a beacon in the midst of culture in order to help people find their way to the truth and to help guide believers through the dark and difficult journey of living in a fallen world. When it comes to counsel, that's our job. Nobody else on earth is going to do it for us. There's a couple of questions for reflection as we get ready to, to wrap up. Can you personally think of a time in your life where you received good, solid biblical counsel and you didn't follow it? I'm going to ask another question to follow up, but more than likely most of us can say, yeah, like, were you with us at the breakfast table today? Like, recently, Right? Um, but, but on the flip side, have there been times in your journey, hopefully so, where you've received good, solid biblical counsel and you did submit to it and you were able to see over time the fruit that is, that is born from that. In your life currently, what area or areas or decisions are you facing that it would be wise to seek biblical counsel? What areas in your life right now Would it be wise for you to go to a mature believer in Christ to say, would you speak truth into this situation? I need to lay it out for you over coffee, over dinner, if need be, in an office setting, whatever the setting needs to be, okay? I need to lay this situation out, and I want you to speak into it. What situations in your life would warrant that right now? And then the follow-up question is, will you consider approaching a mature Christian to seek God's counsel in this matter? Um, next week, we're going to come back and talk more about discipleship and how that relationship works and give hopefully some practical insight on how to make that play out or to participate in that playing out. But for today, just I want to leave you with that question. Um, I'm going to pray for us and ask the worship team to come back up, and, uh, and our prayer partners will be down here at the front. Even today, you might want to come share something and, and at least be prayed over, um, or you might want to talk a little bit about what God is doing in your life. As our worship team comes up and our prayer partners come up, <clears throat> just... Again, reminded by Pastor Ben's um, passion to see the gospel uh, reach the ends of the earth. Um, You may be here today, and you have yet to respond uh, to the gospel of Jesus uh, in a personal way. And so today could be the day for you that you say, you know what, I'm going to believe the gospel in faith and believe that God will begin working in me supernaturally, changing me from the inside out. And if that's you today, you could stay where you're seated. You could ask one of these prayer partners to pray with you. I just want to encourage you to respond to the love of God displayed and sending his son to the cross on your behalf that your eyes might be open, that you might be healed and restored into a beautiful relationship with the living God. Let me pray for us and we'll...